Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn together to Hebrews chapter 8. That's on page 1005 if you're using the church Bible. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8. And after seven chapters and 34 sermons, we're kind of relieved to read the opening line of verse 1. <clears throat> now the point. <laughs> now the point in what we've been saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, for when Moses was about to erect the tent he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." Some of you will know, and others of you are missing out, that, uh, that some, from time to time I've been known to tweet. Uh, I'm not talking about my attempts to sing, of course, but the tweets that I send out on Twitter. If you're not following me, shame on you, but uh, <clears throat> there was a, a bit of a Twitter storm this, this week. I wasn't involved in it myself, but I was observing it as it was taking place, and the precipitant was that one of the best-known ministries in the country had tweeted a tweet that said something like this, you are not saved by faith alone. Without works, you will not get in to heaven. You are not saved by faith alone and without works, you will not get in to heaven. I won't say who said it, though it was on the Desiring, Desiring God website. Um, supposing that was true. Supposing those words are, in fact, what we believe about salvation. We come to church this morning believing that we're not saved by faith alone, that Without good works, we will not get into heaven. What kind of effect will that have on your worship? Will you be happy? Will you be sad? Will you be confident? Or will you be hesitant? Will you have a sense that though you've failed and fallen and so on, when you come to confess your sins to God, that is like a slap in the face putting you down yet again without any reassurance that when it comes to that final day, you will get into heaven. 
You see, what you believe about salvation has ramifications for the way in which you worship God with full-orbed joy, with joyful praises, with confidence. We sing hymns sometimes, with confidence I now draw nigh and Abba, Father, Abba, cry. Well, would you be able to do that? You are not saved by faith alone, and without good works you will not get in to heaven. Now, it was a tweet, and people sometimes have to abbreviate, shorten, rearrange what they say. But if that was the truth, would you even be here this morning? It is in correction to that that the writer now draws our attention to what it is gives us cause to worship God with undiminished and unfettered joy. He has been arguing, so he now tells us, that we have a priest. And now he's going to bring our attention to bear both on who he is and on what he offers. And we're going to learn that he is unique in both respects. Who he is and what he offers are utterly unique. He has already been showing us bit by bit, piece by piece, as he's been putting all the bits of the puzzle into place until he gets to this main point. He's been showing us that the main purpose of God behind Bethlehem, the reason that the Son of God humbled himself and put on our skin and became one of us, was precisely so he could act on our behalf as a priest. In uh, chapter 2, verse 17, for this reason, the Son had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. You see, he knows that these Hebrews to whom he's writing are Jewish converts. They come out of a background in which they went to the temple. They would go on pilgrimage to the temple. If they didn't live nearby, they would go on pilgrimage there. And there was at the temple this massive structure, beautiful building, nothing like the original Solomon Temple, but it was a pretty prestigious building for its day. People came to see it. It was a part of the tourist industry. You went to Jerusalem to see the, the temple. And there was ceremony, and there were sacrifices, and there were blessings, and there were all of the great uh, theater and drama involved in the whole business of corporate worship there in Jerusalem. And these believers, these people that he's writing to, they have come out of all of that. They're now meeting in people's homes. They're meeting in small halls here or there. It's all so bland and ordinary. There's no grand sacrifice. There's no great altar. There's no mystery anymore. It's just them and the songs they sing and the sermons they hear, and that's it. They were thinking of going back, and the writer is writing to them specifically 
And his argument is, number one, we have a better priest than the Old Testament. If I look at what he says here, this is the point. This is the main idea. This is the big thought that has been driving the, 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 the language and the argument since, well, since the beginning, but particularly since chapter 5. We have, he says, such a priest. He's emphasizing the kind of priest, the uniqueness, the amazingness, the awesomeness. We have such a priest, he says, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's already said at the end of chapter 7 that we have a priest who is fitting. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And he's described the character of that high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. He's utterly unique. As a human being, he's utterly unique. He's not like us. He's not a sinner like us. He has nothing to confess himself. He could not have prayed the prayer that we just prayed at the beginning of the service today because he is an innocent and sinless high priest. But we have such a priest. And you notice he's saying that this is beyond speculation or theorizing. We have such a priest. We have Jesus. And he is real. And he is ours. And unlike the priesthood of the old Levitical regime in Jerusalem, who came and had their period of ministry and then died and left it. This Jesus has his ministry forever. He is our forever priest, we learned last Sunday. And what he does here as he makes his main point is that he very nicely brings together his main themes so far about Jesus as the divine Son on the one hand and Jesus as the human priest on the other. The language of verse 1 is taken from Psalm 110. If you have your Bibles lying open there, you can see that he's quoted from that psalm back in verse 21 of chapter 7, back in verse 17 of chapter 7. He's quoted it again right at the very beginning of, of uh, the book where, where he quotes from Psalm 110. And... Uh, this language, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here is the Lord speaking to the Lord. And back in the prologue, back at the very beginning of uh, Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, here's what he says about the divine Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God he is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what he said at the beginning. Now he repeats it. He comes back there here in verse 1. He has taken a seat. 
He is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what he's doing for us here is he is taking Jesus, the historical Jesus they knew about, the historical Jesus you may know about. He is taking Jesus and he is talking about where Jesus is now. Where is Jesus now? And he places him very firmly, not in an earthly context, but a heavenly context. He gets us out of this world, out of this reality that we're familiar with, which he will later say is only a shadow lands. He takes us from shadow lands to the concrete reality of where God is and the reality of God in heaven. And whereas in Psalm 110, the Lord says to the Lord, sit at my right hand, here he tells us who the my is. He tells us who the first Lord is. He is the majesty in heaven. Where is, where is the Lord seated? He is seated in the place of majesty in heaven. Now, this author then has wanted us to see this and progressively has been introducing us to this throughout the book. He's been dropping hints along the way. Chapter 4, verse 14, he says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, through the air with its clouds and birds flying around, through the, the heavens of the galaxies and the planets, through the invisible heavens of the angels and the archangels and the demons, to the heaven of heavens. That is that created reality that God has prepared for creatures like us to enjoy Him and to be in His presence, right there where God makes Himself known in that very special way. He has passed through the heavens. Later on in chapter 6, 19, our forerunner, Jesus, has reached the inner place behind the curtain. That is, using the imagery of the temple and the tabernacle, where there was a holy place and there was, there was a, a holy of holies behind the curtain. Well, that was the place where God met with people. He's gone right into the Holy of Holies, the one in heaven itself. Or in chapter 7, verse 3, the Son of God is a priest forever, eternally. He has no end to His work. In verse 25 of chapter 7, He always lives, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Or verse 27 of chapter 7, He is exalted, higher than the heavens. So, where is Jesus now? As our eternal priest, He is in the immediate presence of God. In fact, He, he uses this language, beyond the veil, passing through, are meant to give us the idea of heaven as the true, the genuine holy place. He, he defines the sanctuary, that heavenly sanctuary, as the place where God is fully manifested, at least as fully manifested as it is possible for creatures to comprehend or to bear. And that place where God exists essentially and eternally must be the real the true, the genuine, 
holy place. So where is Jesus now? He is in the very presence of God. He is in the place of all power and authority. Look at the expression, the majesty in heaven. That's an expression referring to God. So where is Jesus? He shares the majesty in heaven. We think of God and we think of majesty. Majesty is resplendent, splendor. It brings the weight, the heaviness of an office, of a personage that has power and authority above the ordinary common herd. Now, back in Britain, we play a bit with majesty. We have a queen. She rides in carriages. She has people who go before her. They, they open the carriage door for her. They put the step down. They stand there ready to take her hand. If she offers it, they're not allowed to touch her. She must initiate the whole procedure. And down she'll come, and with her flowing robes, in she'll go, and she'll open parliament. And it's all very splendid and all very wonderful. It's very majestic. But she has no authority. She's a constitutional monarch. If she makes a speech, the prime minister has to vet it first. Occasionally, she goes off script. And when she goes off script, she soars. I remember the millennial celebrations. And there was uh, no provision made in the millennial celebrations in Great Britain for any mention, any mention of Jesus Christ. And I am reliably told there was a phone call to the prime minister from a certain lady who lives in Buckhouse telling him, if the archbishop does not come and offer a prayer in Jesus' name, there will be no queen at the ceremony. And there was a last-minute scrabble, there was an archbishop, there was a prayer, and there was a queen. So, when she wants to, she can exercise her influence. But majesty has to do with the weight of the presence of someone whose office is important and significant, and the authority that goes with that office. And when we read about the majesty in heaven, you notice that the, the Son shares that majesty. He shares the Father's throne. There is only one throne in heaven, and the Lord Jesus is sitting on it at the right hand, the place of power and authority. And eventually, when every enemy of His has been defeated, every elect person has been brought in to the family of God, when His work of cosmic mediation is over, He will deliver the kingdom to the Father and thus God, the Trinity, will be over all, all in all. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Lord Jesus sat. That's what the writer is saying. He sat down. It was the climax of His work from humiliation and crucifixion through resurrection and ascension, 
He has taken his humanity into the presence of his own glory. It's an amazing thing. It leaves us breathless in wonder at what God has done in Christ. Now, I've said all of that, but you could go away with the wrong idea in your head, and so I'm going to clarify some wrong ideas that could very easily creep in right at this moment, because I'm anticipating. I can read your mind. Number one, the eternal Son in His divine nature is not capable of being exalted or of having any addition of glory, only of His manifestation of His glory. Remember the disciples. During his earthly life, they, they saw a glimpse of this in the Mount of Transfiguration. There he was. He was transfigured before, the, before him. Uh, but, but his humanity covered the manifestation of his glory. The Son is God over all, blessed forever. That glory, that, the outshining or the manifestation or revealing of, of his glory can be more or less present. It was less manifested in his humanity. So the divine nature is not capable of exaltation. Here's the second thing that you may be confused about. The person of the Son, that is the eternal Son, never, ever left his throne. He never left his throne. Although we use this language, don't we, of him descending. We, we got that language, by the way, from Jesus. Who can ascend to God but he who is first descended? But what he was doing there is using human language to communicate the incommunicable to, to his disciples. They weren't ready to get their heads around that. We talk about Jesus being obedient to death, even death on the cross. That's language that we use from our limited human perspective. But right at the very beginning of Hebrews, we find this very important fact. The, the eternal Son is the one who is sustaining all things by His word of power. So here's the deal. If the eternal Son ever left His throne, what would happen? No you, no me, no church, no planet, no universe, no nothing. Poof! I like to do that. It kind of resonates around the, the building here. <laughs> Just playing with the uh, acoustics. That's what chapter 1 tells us. While he was a little baby thing, the Son of God is upholding the universe by the word of his power. In other words, when he took on humanity, it was true humanity. In his human nature, he experienced real humanity. And it's that humanity, here's the third little thing here, it's that humanity that is exalted. It is, and you'll notice how the, the author again and again repeats this, it is Jesus who is exalted. Remember? 
Over and over again, we've been learning that when the writer to the Hebrews talks about the Son, he's talking about the eternal Son of God, God Himself. When he uses the word Jesus, he's talking about the humanity of the man, Christ Jesus. And when he uses the term Christ, he's talking about His office, His official position. He is the Christ of God, who is a prophet, a priest, and a king. It is Jesus, humanity, that is exalted. And it is the perfect blend of God and man, or or the, the union of God and man in the dignity of the Godhead that we worship. We worship Him as God because of that perfect union between two natures in Himself. He is the God-man. And in His human nature, He has greater dignity than any other created being. There's no doubt about that. So when it talks about the glorification of the Christ then, it's the exaltation not only of the man Christ Jesus, but also of His office as our Messiah. That's why in that union, the union within Christ of humanity and deity, that we can say these words, God has redeemed the church with His own blood. God has redeemed the church with His own blood. So, when you think of Christ, you're thinking of one person with two natures. No, he's not schizophrenic. He is one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, and a human human soul, body and soul. And the human Jesus does not acquire divine attributes. There is no bleeding over of divine attributes into the human Jesus. Why is that important? It's important because he would cease to be truly human. Nor is there anything that bleeds off of his humanity into his divine nature, because then God would cease to be God, the unchanging and unchangeable God. Jesus' humanity has integrity and remains fully fully human for eternity. The man Christ Jesus cannot be anywhere else than where he is right now in the presence of God, where your loved ones are if they've gone home to glory. His humanity is real. Now, the author wants wants to underline the fact that right now our high priest, our Jesus, in his exalted state, has achieved in his humanity the perfection of salvation for his people. He rules over everything, every event of history, every earthly, supernatural, spiritual power. He's working everything together for the good of his church, and he's able to make his people acceptable to God and give them all the supplies of grace to enable them to live for God in the world. We have a better priest. And we have a better minister. We have a better minister. 
The author has just affirmed that Jesus is exalted for us, that he has sat down. Now, we might wonder, as John Owen uh, uh, begins to wonder when he's writing about this, uh, we might begin to wonder what we can now expect of him. After all, he had a, he had a rough life. He, he had a tough time. He was tested and tempted in every way, and, and uh, he was crucified, dead, and buried. He was despised and rejected of men. He, he had a rough time while he was here. Maybe, maybe he should now live in the eternal happiness and enjoyment of his own blessedness and glory in heaven. Maybe he should have, in John Owen's words, 17th century uh, Puritan theologian, maybe he should have a break after all that he has undertaken and undergone while here on earth. We read in the Gospels, he says, of all the miseries and hardships he experienced while on earth, it might be time for retirement and ease rather than office and duty. But we'd be wrong. The author does not miss a step. Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. A minister. It comes from the Greek word liturgos, which gives us our word liturgy. In the secular world of the day, it referred to the performance of a public service by a public servant, usually at one's own expense. Jesus is still a public minister for His church. And this public work He does, He does in the realm of worship. That's the way it's used in the Old Testament. Here, the, the language is in the holy places or holy things. Jesus is active there. Now, what do we mean when it says that he is active in the genuine tent or the true tent, the real thing? It's very possible that he's using this language about Jesus' own human body, his human nature, rather. Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, and John Owen, the three musketeers, take this view. Christ often referred to himself his body is a temple. In John chapter 1, we're told that he pitched his tent, his tabernacle among us. He said to the disciple, to, to the Pharisees, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again on the third day. When he was conceived in the womb of the virgin, the angel Gabriel spoke to the Blessed Virgin these words, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the holy thing will be called the Son of God. When Paul is talking about the human form of Jesus, he says, there the fullness of the Godhead was seen in bodily form. He entered heaven as the final temple as the perfect tabernacle, as the perfect place where the presence of God is. If you think about it for a moment, in which created form and shape has, have human beings ever seen a manifestation, the perfect manifestation of the invisible God? Answer? In Jesus' humanity, 
in his human nature. He is the image of the invisible God. We have a better priest, and we have a better minister. And lastly, we have a better offering. We have a better offering. He goes on to say this, every high priest was appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. He wasn't from the right tribe. He couldn't be a priest in the Levitical priesthood. Those priests have to offer only what the law requires. He is a different kind of order of priest. The writer says they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, let's remind ourselves of what a priest is meant to do. Chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men and women in relation to God. That's their job. We started off today by saying, salvation is not by faith alone. Without good works, you cannot get into heaven. What is the teaching of the New Testament? What is the teaching of the book of Hebrews? It is not to ask you to look at yourself. It is to ask you to look at Jesus. Again and again and again, he's been saying, take your eyes off yourself. Look to Jesus. What is he? He is a priest. That's the main point, says the author. What do priests do? They are appointed to represent humans in matters concerning God. They're to do it on your behalf. Why? Because you're not qualified to do it. And what do they do? They offer sacrifices. The earthly priests, they offered sacrifices in accordance with the ceremonial law of Moses. Animals, birds. But this priest, well, for one thing, he doesn't make any sacrifices for himself because he's not a sinner. That's what we were told there in chapter 7, verse 26. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. He was the only one who could act properly on our behalf. Not only that, priests are to offer sacrifices. Surely there must be one for this priest. That's what he said. It is necessary for this priest to have something to offer. So what does he offer? Not the ones required by the ceremonial law, not animals or birds. In chapter 1, verse 3, he, we're told, made purification for sin. In chapter 7, verse 27, he offered himself in the law, in the ceremonial law of Moses, all the animals had to be checked out to see if there were any flaws in them. The author has just told us, if you checked out Jesus, there were no flaws, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. He is a priest who's qualified 
qualified to act on our behalf. He's qualified to be the offering, the single sacrifice. That's what it says. He should be able to offer something. This priest also should have something to offer. And that something is a single something. And that single something is himself. Thomas Aquinas puts it like this. It was pure. Christ's offering was pure since his flesh has no stain of sin. It was appropriate since it was fitting that a human being should die for human beings. It was suitable for sacrifice because his flesh was mortal. And he offered a singular sacrifice, a singular something that would be all-sufficient for all time. This sacrifice of Christ is exactly what we need. Two threads in this passage pull the thought together. He offered up himself at the end of chapter 7. He was made perfect. As a priest, you couldn't get any better. As a sacrifice, you could not get any better. He himself offered himself. So what are, where are my hopes of heaven based? Are my hopes of heaven based on any amount of good works I do in my lifetime? That would spell disaster for me and disaster for you. If there was any sense that you had this morning as you came into church that you were without sin and unstained and separated from sinners, you would be living in cloud cuckoo land, wouldn't you? All you need is for your dinner to be burnt when you go home, and you would know perfectly well that you were not stainless or sinless. All you would need is for somebody to have scored the side of your car with their key, and you would go ballistic. <laughs> My dear friends, we need such a priest who meets all the requirements and more and who has gone into the very presence of God to offer himself on behalf of his people. And we have, says the author, we have such a priest. We have Jesus. He's gone into that, into that authentic, genuine place, the very presence of God. And there he intercedes for us. So what are you dependent on to get into heaven? If God were to say to you, you were to die today and God were to say to you, why would I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I know what I'm going to say. I know what Hebrews teaches me to say. Upon a life I did not live, Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Rest in Christ, in Christ alone, for your salvation, brother and sister, today. That's what brings joy to worship. 
As the author will go on to say, that's what gives boldness to come before the throne of grace. That's what gives confidence to cry, Abba, Father. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that today you would uh, give us the joy of knowing that our sins have been dealt with, we've been reconciled to yourself through the work of our Savior, our great high priest, that we have a sacrifice for sin. It's been made, and the evidence of it is now in, the very, in your very presence in the humanity of our Savior. We pray, Father, therefore, you would fill us with all joy and peace <clears throat> in believing, <clears throat> and that the good works we do perform this week, we may do out of gratitude for all that he is to us and joy for all that he has given to us. We pray in his strong name.